Welcome to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepherd. You may have seen his Instagram, at Foodie, but you might not know the story of the man before the mountains and his incredible transformation. This is Harrison Ward, and he is on Why in the World. When I said to you, I've, I've never had a breakfast cooked by a, a guest before, you went, well, you know, it is kind of my name, so yeah. <laughs> Let's start with Fell Foodie, actually. Where did that come from? Why did that become a thing? I think initially I just sort of, uh, I didn't have an Instagram account at all before, I never even used it, and I just sort of started it as something really to share pictures of my dinner, <laughs> so to avoid annoying my Facebook friends, really. So it was very much anonymous at the time. It was me taking, basically, pictures of my meals I'd made at home and pictures of sort of packed lunches I'd made and going in the hills. So. I had no name on it, I had no pictures of me, it was just pictures of views I saw when I was out hiking, packed lunches maybe in my hand and finished dishes um, in the kitchen. Um, and it sort of went from there. So initially it was very small, I met some great people through it. I think I know you've had like James on the podcast before, um, people like Adventure and Nick, and seemed to sort of build a bit of a community around there. And as it started going out, I started sort of finding areas of my own, and then basically I ended up buying a stove, a camping stove in the end. So I got into the wild camping side, and needed something to make the, put the food. And then I started basically taking the two passions, I guess, and taking that outdoors. So initially it was just very much indoors, prepping it, taking it out. And before long, next minute I was prepping completely on the mountainside on at first a little wood burning stove. I had, I've also got a gas stove now as well. I used the two out there, just creating these almost restaurant foodie dishes, if you like, out in the hills, just showing that it's possible to do it on minimal equipment and almost taking it back to where cooking initially originated, I guess. Yeah. If you, uh, if you haven't seen that Instagram account, by the way, go and see it pop it a follow. What I think you do really well is share your story before Fell Foodie. And it is almost like there are two yous in mm-hmm. a sense. Mm-hmm. There's you prior to Fell Foodie and you prior to finding this love for the outdoors. And there is this you that I see in front of me now. So let's flash back to a few years back. You were living in York. That's right. And it was a difficult time. What was going on in your life at that point? Well, I'll probably take it back a bit further than that, if you don't mind, really, because it's um, it's something that stemmed with me I, I, as early as puberty, really. I think sort of the minute I hit sort of maybe 12, 13, you know, you're going through a lot of those changes as a person, I guess, and really I sort of found myself really being taken over by this big self-loathing and sort of, you know, demotivation sort of side of things and, and really fell into what I now understand, obviously, to be depression. Depression can sort of affect people in different ways. I think some people can get it sort of situationally. Um, if something's happened, obviously, big in their life, or it could be through behavioural. But for me, I think it was it was so early doors. It was just something that hit me. Initially, it was something I guess I very much hid, hid away. It's um, something you just dealt with, just something you just realised that was was part of you, but struggled through. And I mean, this at its worst, obviously, this was really, really, really rock bottom times. You know, not really wanting to exist anymore, sort of uh, not wanting to leave the house. You know, sort of ignoring um, friends, family. And when I got to about 18, you know, I'd, I'd worked a few jobs through school, you know, you're waiting on jobs, pot washing jobs, whatnot. And I kept myself in the hospitality trade and found myself working behind a bar. I then discovered, I guess, the world of alcohol as well. And initially this was great. I think it was very much, it was, it was a happy time. You socialised with people, you always chatting there over a drink. And quite quickly I found this to um, almost silence my mind, if you like, sort of sedate my mind a little bit and... and calm me down and sort of bring me down to a normal level which obviously I wanted to be at you know be mm. I guess this paraphrase of normal so by the time I'd actually went to university at 19 now I was um, I was quite in this world of alcohol I'd been working that sort of way I was now sort of drinking every day and sort of heading into university plenty of freshers training shall we say you know 
by that point it was very much just part of me sort of medicating my mind if you like just sort of sort of try to to give myself an even sort of benchmark I was known as quite a big drinker quite heavy drinker someone who could handle my drink by that point which again I think is more of a bravado thing at that sort of university yeah. point you know you sort of yeah, yeah, exactly challenged against and whatnot people are coming up going oh you know well, I was a fairly long taking sort of 20 pounds out for a night out and you're thinking well that's just a few warm up drinks really but <laughs> but a different world yeah and I think it quite quickly um, fell into something that wasn't a laugh anymore and it wasn't uh, a most enjoyable experience for me I guess and the, the studies quickly fell by the wayside with other priorities, I guess. I mean, I, you know, I started missing my lectures, whatnot. You know, I wouldn't get up for lectures in the morning because I'd been out that late the night before. And as soon as you sort of wake up, it would be a case of feeling that bad. I'd just start again, really, and go back out again, get back on the drink and whatnot. And I'd also found another job at this point back in that sort of pub trade. So I was in that environment uh, once more. So it was all 19 when I went. So I was a year later going um, to university. So by which point I was already, I was quite an old head as it was. But then I was into this sort of uh, pub environment, drinking that way, sort of much prefer to be in the old real ailman's pub in the daytime rather yeah. than being in the SU sort of thing. You know? But yeah, but once the study sort of fell by the wayside, it really started slipping, slipping away. So I mean, by this point, I'd, um, I'd, I'd taken up smoking as well. Um, I hadn't touched a cigarette at all before I was 18. Very anti-smoking, to be honest, and just picked those up as well as part of the, as part of the routine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, initially social smoking, then it sort of slips here. Next minute, he's smoking on the way to the pubs, and then next minute, it's, it's, it's day to day. At this point, I mean, I was, I was probably consuming the likes of... Um, over 20 pints a day by this point really it, it, it was quite silly figures um, yeah, some serious units yeah and, and again it still didn't really seem that unusual to me at the time it was just I just like a drink I'm a heavy drink I can handle my drink I'm just a big lad you know it's, it's, it's fine I'm smoking full time and I'd also ballooned in weight so I'd, I'd gone to university sort of I'd always sort of carried a bit of weight through school I think you know sort of, I meant puppy fat whatnot, and I've never really been into any particular exercise hugely but I basically, within about three months of leaving university, um, I'd also whacked on seven stone onto my body. So I'd gone to about 22 stone in weight uh, with this unhealthy lifestyle that I was leading. But the problems hadn't really still surfaced by that point. I mean, mm. for me, I knew that I was just hiding this this depression and, and what was essentially suicidal thoughts, if I'm very honest, um, just sort of fighting those daily with trying to black out my mind, really, by, by really sort of shutting it down. With university then, you said since leaving university, you mentioned that your studies kind of fell by the wayside a yeah. little bit. Did you end up graduating university or was it a case of dropping out of university? Yeah, uh, hopefully my employers aren't listening to this, cause, uh, but I did drop out. Yeah, yeah, I did drop out. I dropped out initially. At first, it was actually it was quite, it was quite, a, quite a positive dropout. It was mainly because of a refusal to do one of the essays they wanted me to do. It was an essay based on punctuation, I think. And, I had a little bit of a kick up saying that if you're at university, you should know this by now. So <laughs> we went our separate ways on a, on a stubborn stubborn mindset initially. But um, yeah, six months later, I'd actually, I'd gone back again. I'd put, put forward my circumstances and I'd gone through sort of um, pre-balls and sort of things and was given the opportunity to go back again. So I started again in the second year now, so I had to complete the first year, started again at that point. And they put me through halfway through the second year. So I joined a new group of people that, you know, you didn't have the chance to bond with and whatnot. And I did want to go back, I did want to finish it and felt I was able to, you know, I had sort of the mindset for it, but I just didn't really apply myself that way. I wasn't, it wasn't my priority, if you mm. like. So again, I was probably popping onto the university campus and more likely to slide into the student union again, or then I missed a few lectures again. And it started to fall off quite quickly back into the, I couldn't sustain the two lifestyles. And I was actually called up in front of the, uh, the, the head of programme in the end and um, for uh, a D-Day meeting, if you like. 
and uh, I was I was told by a friend of mine who had a similar one that it was quite it was quite a casual affair. It was just a head of program, just sort of saying, "Oh, please pick your, pick your ideas up." And I turned it to mine. It was actually the the dean was there, the vice dean was there, the chancellor, the registrar, and the head of program all all knowing my backstory, knowing me, uh, my afflictions, that sort of way. And they gave me an ultimatum really and said that you know I had to be in um, really show progress and really show a willingness to be there. But didn't really show a lot of compassion for for the actual things I was I was saying on an issue. They saw them all as an excuse actually at the time, which I don't blame them for. I think you know maybe they could see it was trying to get that second chance sort of thing. But I think again it's maybe that this whole sort of culture around the mental health thing. I guess that there's people are trying to promote and promote more awareness of. There's still some even archaic sort of views towards it. Yeah, but they weren't to know the battle that was mm. going on at the time, but. Um, it did fall by the wayside again and I went into the full-time employment in the hospitality trade and that was really where um, it started slipping away. As you mentioned previously, that is kind of where things start spiralling even worse. Yeah. You're, you're drinking throughout the day, you're drinking at work and you're obviously in that environment 24-7. How was that? Well, it was kidding in a sweet shop at the time. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was a perfect environment and I think one of the reasons I did stay in that so long was 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 due to those reasons. It suited my lifestyle at the time. Again, it was still very sociable, and I did meet some good friends in that industry. And and you know, I, I by no means want to say it was all complete darkness and there wasn't any happy times, but there was some. But it was mainly the sort of the hidden life I was leading. Again, like you mentioned at the start, living the sort of the two different worlds, and it was very much that sort of way. It was it was the, the front you put on towards the, the public facing persona, and then the sort of secret life you lived in the in the background. By this point, it was it was deeply ingrained into my life. It was it was you know it could be waking up in the morning sort of you know, start starting straight away again and I actually ended up moving in and living in the pub as well at the time so um, I got into the echelons of management at this point as well I did work myself up my whole day was just spent in, the, in that premises so it was if I, if I wasn't off I'd be in there for a drink anyway again using the social aspect as the excuse I still hadn't come to terms with it myself though by this point um, again just still, still remember saw it just as a heavy drinking but yeah was, I, was, I was quickly seemed to realise that I, I'd stumbled into this bout of bout of alcohol addiction it wasn't until sort of my twenty-first birthday, where I had a lot of friends from home come up, a lot of school friends, a lot of whatnot, and they they came up to visit York, and uh, the idea was, you know, we have a, a big, big sort of five-day session, if you like. So, um, <laughs> for me, this this was run of the mill, I guess, but for everybody else, it was it was. And I've been on a five-day session for <laughs> a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, and I think I was on a two and a half year one for at one point, but they all came up anyway and it was a great sense of by this point I'd got quite lonely in the city of where I was you know I'd got um, I was working this job I was quite highly functioning um, but I wasn't really hanging around with any of the sort of university gang I wasn't really particularly affiliated with any one person in particular no sort of best friend if you like or or group of friends in the city it was very much just me and I was quite a lone ranger in how I went about my business I'd take myself out I'd, I got sick of waiting for people really to be you know mm. making plans I'd just go well, I want to go and do it so I'll go and do it myself so I was a lone ranger in that, in that respect and um, so all these friends come up and there's the big sense of camaraderie again you know you feel part of something again they're all sort of doing a similar thing and for a brief time it all it masks over all those cracks as the days went on a few friends started to go home and they started to go back again and, and it wasn't until the fifth day where there was one of my friends left Jamie it was just me and him left and we went on a big night out again sort of continued the, continued the way it had all gone it sort of came to a head a bit I mean, he, he was chatting to somebody else on one of the nights out and like we got a bit distanced from each other on, on one of the bars and it just started flooding a bit back to me again that you know, I was very soon to be alone in this city again just me and my thoughts and this sort of unhealthy lifestyle I'd fell into for a moment the, the, the sort of the masking I'd created with this with, with the drink slipped 
and it all came back in, in sort of in severity. I took myself out from that bar. I sort of stumbled home. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm completely under the influence at this point. You know, I don't, I don't recall a lot of this situation. Certainly not the conversation I was about to have. But stumbled back to my residence, um, which was quite close to the the, the railway um, at York. Um, I didn't have a phone or anything at this point. I didn't like to be contacted. I didn't like to be bothered. I didn't like to be know where people where, where I was. Just sort of get about my business in my own way. So I went to a payphone, and it was probably three, four o'clock in the morning. You know, very, very drunk at the time, and I made a call to my mum at the time, and basically the call was to, was to say goodbye if I, and I rang up to say that I could no longer live with the, the issues I had and that my plan was to go and sit on the tracks and, and end my life I don't recall what was said at the time and it must have been a very harrowing conversation um, as much, much for her as it was for me especially to be woken up from sleep sort of to hear this but I was talked out of it uh, and really maybe if I'm honest with myself I, I don't think I ever really wanted to particularly go through with it it, it was possibly my eventual cry for help that way and, and this is where it all came to light and she somehow got in contact with Jamie anyway um, the following day uh, and before I knew it I was getting carted back to Cumbria and this these sort of this hidden sort of backstory had become known amongst my friends and my family but I wasn't ready to change at this point I went back for a week a week or so um, had meetings with my GP had a bit of the counselling was putting things you know suicide watch and whatnot. But it wasn't me and it wasn't the way I coped with things. So I quickly booked a ticket back to York, got back on the train, went back again and continued my life for another three years. Exactly the same way I was doing before. Um, but now, with everyone else with the knowledge of, of what I was doing, but I wasn't ready for this this lifestyle to end. And during this time, surprisingly, obviously, with this, this sheer amount of weight I'd packed on, this completely lethargic lifestyle, this um, what must have been a very attractive-looking lifestyle with a fag hat at my mouth and copious pints and glazed over eyes constantly I found myself a girlfriend somehow oh. <laughs> someone for everyone buddy yeah exactly and uh, and yeah and, and this really was, was one of the big changes um, in my life it had been the one thing I sort of I always really was looking for really was that sort of relationship with somebody and, and that element of, of love and whatnot. and and I was with her for, for about a year and a half um, in the end two years and we just sort of moving together it didn't change my ways I, I still sort of still lived this secret life behind her back when it was in it. And I, looking back it was very much like two, two, two worlds you know I was, I was in a relationship with her in one sense and I was in a relationship with alcohol still and the two never mixed or the two sometimes crossed over with sort of kind of catastrophic sort of um, consequences exactly yeah yeah so there was maybe a few ultimatums here and there there was a few fierce arguments but I can see now very clearly that the alcohol always won. The alcohol was really the, the, the true love at the time, if you like. And it was the mistress of your life. Yeah, no, completely. That's very accurate. Yeah, it's um, it was hidden away. You know, and I was always, I was always late coming back home and whatnot. You know, it would be, you know, if you if you've been drinking, no. Yes, you have. You're lying. Well, okay, I've had four. You know, I'd had twelve. You know, or I'd sixteen. I was just constantly lying. It was always a lie. You know, and I sort of planned my days around. We worked very different hours. I worked in the hospitality trade. She was nine to five, Monday to Friday. So. You could still slip in this lifestyle in around sort of meeting up and, and, and lead this double life. It really was. And, but the bubble was, was, was soon to burst. Um, I'd always seen myself as a, as a very loyal person, but um, I, I was actually unfaithful in the end. And, and this case came to prominence. Yeah, and that was and that was the end of the relationship. And um, at this point, it really came to a head, the severity of, of, the, of my relationship with alcohol as well, how it was clouding my sort of my judgment of things it was very much my sole priority it was the one thing I was I was heading out every day so to really get my fix and it was only at this point really that I started coming to terms with the fact that I'd become an alcoholic 
and this was openly discussed again with um, with my now ex partner at this time. I quickly sort of, I suppose, in an attempt to win her back, initially started to try and remove things from my life. So I vowed to quit the drink. I vowed to quit smoking. But in the environment I was in at the time, this wasn't going to be possible. So I remember being sat outside. I actually went to my shift the next day, and I was sat outside, and I quickly I, I did my did my breakfast shift. I was in the kitchens by this point as well, helping out and. My boss noticed something wasn't quite right and asked me asked me how I was and I, and I just broke down completely in front of him and he said take some minutes outside to yourself and sit there and I sat there for the next five hours outside just completely just broke just completely broken mm-hmm. I remember my colleague coming on to shift for the changeover shift by this point that's how long I'd sat my shift had finished I'd just been sat outside and he came out of a pint and said here you are mate you are, you know, cheer up and I said I don't drink anymore John and he looked at me and sort of went sorry I said, no, I don't drink anymore. And he sort of walked off and didn't really know what to say. I mean, this was somebody who had seen me sort of day in, day out, three and a half years, sort of pretty much a human vacuum cleaner, any sort of, <laughs> any, any substance going in the drip chairs or whatnot, you know, I'd finish it off. And I, I, I said, yeah, that's it. That was, that was it for me. Um, I had a few cigarettes left in my pocket. They went in the bin. And my auntie was actually on her way. At this point, it, um, my ex-girlfriend had, had, had spoke to my mum who was actually away at the time and um, she'd constantly my auntie who lived outside York and she'd come in to pick me up and I was whisked away to hers really so I was given a week of um, unauthorised leave shall we say but it was uh, I was in no fit position to be working we went off to my auntie's anyway and went there and sort of thing and all of a sudden I, was, I wasn't in this environment where I could walk down the street to, to my drinking halls I wasn't near my shops you know, I was in a very much a little small village in the walls Again, completely clouded still you know I'm all over the place I'm still sort of um, deep love for this, for this for this girl and sort of wanted to get things back that way and was doing anything possible really to sort of to show that change and again so I'd come off the drink I'd come off the cigarettes and I'd throw myself into fitness initially the only thing that was close to hand was um, a bike in my auntie's garage uh, my auntie's bike of all bikes so <laughs> um, complete with sort of basket bells you know and tassels <laughs> hanging off so I'll make you on that bike I got an image <laughs> so there's me this this you know overweight sort of not very unhealthy looking chap um, obviously no care of the appearance by this point uh, my hair's grown my beard's grown a bit and whatnot. all of a sudden trekking around the walls on this little uh, lady's bicycle and uh, <laughs> I give that a go and I was out there for, the, for a few days um, that week and again, my auntie, she had a gym membership nearby and took me there, we went to that sort of thing, put in the gym. And after the week came by, we came back to York and I decided that I couldn't return to this city at all. I went into where I worked. I said uh, I could no longer be in this environment. Um, if I was going to get clean and stop my, my lifestyle, stop this drinking cycle that I fell into, I couldn't return to that sort of environment. It, it, it was going to be too hard. I left this job behind. I cancelled the contract on my house. I'd obviously already lost my girlfriend by this point. And I just left the city. I, I didn't say goodbye to anyone. I just went. I just upsticked, packed my bags, and was whisked back to Cumbria. Coming back to Cumbria was where it, was where it really started um, escalating, if you like. The, 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 <laughs> journey, the journey started to change. Within days of being back, uh, my best mate, um, Ryan, popped up at my doorstep and said that we were, we were going for a walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was no, no state of fitness still by this point. I was thinking to walk. So I'd got some of my kit on. I just had whatever came to hand at the time, really. So uh, I remember picking up an old school bag. I think I put on an old woolly jumper I had from the cupboard, thinking, oh, in case I get cold, I had a pair of swim shorts on and then donned my, my Lonsdale trainers, you know. So 
uh, <laughs> ready for all eventualities. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that, that was my walking attire. Um, but again, no idea where we're going walking. You know, maybe it was just a walk around the local town, around the, around the town. But anyway, he said that we were heading to the Lake District. <clears throat> um, but at first he took one look at me and said, no, you can't go like that. So on the way to the lakes, um, we pulled over at um, a local outdoor store. They took me in there, grabbed a pair of boots, took them to the counter, and he actually bought me this pair of boots. Um, I, mean, I, had, I had no money to my name at all by this point. Obviously, it was all thrown down my neck. You know, I, I, Any money I had left went on sort of paying off my flat fees and stuff. And I was obviously jobless at this point. And, and so that was, it was a big moment sort of um, for that sort of show of faith and show of uh, of friendship, really. And he, he, he purchased his boots. and. And we got back in the car, we drove down the A66 and pulled up in the car park um, at the base of Blencathra. Again, my knowledge of, of any of these fells mountains at this point is, is minimal. I mean, the, sort of the term Blencathra, I mean, they didn't scream mountains to me, probably screamed more craft beer uh, at the time. And um, he said, we're heading up there. And again, my mind's all over the place by this point. You know, I'm, I'm going through shades of withdrawal now, you know, my, my head's sort of pounding with sort of um, coming off cigarettes, you know, I'm, I'm still pining for sort of my ex my ex love my, my, my whole life's been uprooted you know moved completely right switch right turn overnight I've gone from living sort of a very different lifestyle out no one's bothering me just going out of business but very unhealthily to up sticks all of a sudden very public everyone knows what I'm doing and we set off on this walk in up Blank Cafe and uh I, I can remember it very vividly. I mean, I was I was blowing up my arse. <laughs> I'm very unfit by this point. I'm still I'm still very overweight, and, and I'm plodding up this hill. I mean, I mean, slowly but surely we're getting up here. But the one the one obviously saving grace was the mindset, the want to do this. You know, it was it was I was still again trying to change my life to show that I could change to to again to try and win back this this ex partner initially. And slowly but surely we head up the head of the hill and, and we make it to the summit. And it was it was completely full of cloud and I couldn't see anything, but we made it there. He turned to me Ryan at the top. And rather than saying, if you know, well done, where you got there, blah, 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 it just said, hell of a next week. <laughs> now that's when you know you got a mate. <laughs> I don't even remember responding, but we're all on a week and there we are at the base of Helvellyn. Now we parked up at Swills Car Park at this point. Um, I know there's, there's two sort of quite famous routes in there, the one from Glenridian, quite a long walk in, long steady, or there's the one from Swills Car Park and Filmier, which again is one of my favourite walks now, but it's the altitude you gain there. You gain very quickly. It's a, it's a staircase to the top. And it was a glorious day this day. That so we we headed out again. Obviously, I donned the boots now that I'd been purchased the, the previous week, and and up we went. And obviously, oh, it, it was just as hard again as the hell. You know, again, I, I'd done little bits in between this point, but we started marching up the fell slowly but surely again. Plodding, remember, just the size of my feet, just uh, just struggling forward, just really absent-minded, just walking to the top, uh, marching to the top of this this mountain. Upon reaching the summit. Something really did click in me. We reached the tree point, walked a bit further on, and looked down across um, one of the iconic ridges, obviously striding edge, looking back with all the water in the distance. I said, a glorious day, red tarn was there, the sunshine glowing off it. And it was just the most spectacular view. It seemed at that point that it, it just ignited mm. almost a new addiction in me, um, where I knew I had this sort of, this love for this, this activity in, in the outdoors. They're kind of the first couple of weeks back then, these first couple of peaks, and then obviously your mate Ryan, he's saying that we're going to go and do this, we're going to go and do that. Where are you at at this point? All over the place still, completely, uh, yeah, very honestly. But with this new sort of bug, has definitely bitten. So after that walk up Helvellyn, um, something has definitely sparked. And it's something I want to do again. It, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a happy feeling to get there. It's, it's a good feeling of elation reaching that summit. So this sort of then became the, ne- the hobby over the next few weeks, I guess, if you like. So it, it became more and more peaks in the lakes 
it became sort of keeping up that fitness journey. Um, again, I joined a gym by this point. Um, I'd even gone into running. I mean, I, I couldn't run a bath before at all. You mm-hmm. know, I couldn't, um, and then I couldn't run down the street. And before long, from hiking these mountains, from really struggling going up this sort of uh, Blencathra, again, at that 22 stone weight, six, seven months on, we're now done in the trail trainers and we're going up these peaks, you know, and we're sort of, we're, we're having little runs up these peaks and whatnot, you know, and I, I, I've stripped down completely. I've lost a lot of the weight, um, much healthier mindset. After these challenges of the mountains again, so we've done Blencathra by this point, Elvel and Scarfell Pike then came. Uh, we then gone down to do Snowdon, up to Ben Nevis by the, by the end of the year. So within six months, you know, I'd covered sort of these three national peaks and um, the running had taken off and, and my friend turned around to me and said, uh, do you fancy a marathon? You know, I laughed in his face. I thought, there's no chance, no chance whatsoever. You know, I'd gone from, you know, this, this whole couch to 5K thing that took off a few years ago. It was very much here. But my couch to 5K or couch to top of the mountain. to top yeah, of Yeah, exactly. That's it. So the 6th of June it was, was the day that completely went cold turkey. Everything just stopped. And now we roll on to, now we're in, I think the 17th of March it was. We're lining up at the front of this marathon. So less than 12 months time. You know, and I've stood at this start line now nearly a year sober, completely smoke-free. I'm seven stone lighter, and my head's in a much better place. And I'm actually running a marathon, man. I mean, this is just, it's a completely parallel universe to You're what it was. You're a different person. Totally different yeah. person. The personality's been there, but just almost clouded, just hidden, hidden, hidden by these other afflictions at the time. But in terms of how, how I'm living, it's, it, it's, a, it's a right turn. How was the marathon then? You're into my game now. What are you saying? <laughs> I'll leave it to you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I finished, I finished anyway, so I was happy with that. It was just one of those real culmination of the turnaround, I think, sort of. It also shows to a lot of people that how much your life can change in such a small period, yeah. like a year. Huge. You, I mean, you never, it's never too late to make that change, I think. And Although, if you'd have asked me, on the 5th of June, before that change of a day, that I'd be running that in 12 months' time, you know, I'd have left you out of the pub. So where are you at with sobriety now, buddy? So at this point now, um, I've still not touched a drop since that day. I've been now over three and a half years sober, um, still completely smoke-free, and still on this completely different tangent of my life. There's still there's still occasional moments, some shades of that past, but ultimately a much stronger person for it, and, and, and not something I'd, I'd wish to return to. I, I get my fix in very different ways now. And my mind is a lot clearer for it. Has there been any points in the past three and a half years where you felt yourself sliding? If I have slid, it's not been very far. I've never distanced myself from it, though. I've never avoided the situations. Yeah. Um, I, again, I always mention I love that sociable aspect. So even as little as two months after that um, sobriety date, I was off on a mate stag do. And a lot of people said, you know, you shouldn't be going, this is too much, too much. And... I was still going into these pub environments constantly. I was still going in. I was, I was journaling a bit at this time, sort of documenting my thoughts. I was still meeting friends in these environments, but always felt safe in my own head that I wasn't, I wasn't close to slipping. But I can appreciate for some people that that's, that's too much. They've got to completely remove, remove from those elements. But I never wanted to be someone who was no longer invited to things or, you know, he doesn't drink anymore, so he can't, he can't come to this. Or I was giving up a drink. I wasn't giving up my life. Do you ever feel when you're out with friends or at stag do's or, you know, when you've been invited on social occasions, do you ever feel pressure to have a drink? I don't think I personally feel the pressure, but I have been in those situations where people have been trying to force it upon it. And I, I was one of those people myself. I mean, I, I remember being, you know, I wouldn't trust someone who didn't have a drink in their hand sort of thing, you know, and always fill up an empty glass. Quite forceful that way myself, but... 
I've been in some situations where there can be some people a bit, bit rowdy or whatnot, or even you've met some friends of friends who sort of who don't really understand the backstory, and, you know, the line at the shots or whatever, and you go, no, I don't partake, sorry. Go on, have one, no, I don't, I don't drink. It's not something I hide at all now. It's not something I hide. I'm, I'm very open with it. I'm very honest. You know, if they're sort of trying to squeeze out reasons from me, then I'm just quite clear, well, it's, you know, you know, I'm sort of allergic to the stuff, you know. It's not, it's not, uh, it just doesn't bode well. It doesn't sit well in my life anymore. And sometimes, I mean, they, 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 they appreciate that at the time and then maybe half an hour later, a few more drinks flow and they probably forget what you've told them and they come back again asking for another drink. And, but some people are very hesitant as well. They very don't want to tread on the toes or they're very cautious around you. And even, even my own mum, to be fair, and I go, how are you? You know, it's, she'd be there going, oh, are you okay if I have a drink? Are you okay if this or... I'm just going to open this this bottle on this. Are you going to be okay? And I'm like, absolutely fine. No, I don't. I don't pass out from the sniff of it. Like, yeah, I don't ask you if I'm going to have a chocolate bar. I'm going to be okay. You know, it's fine. Packet <laughs> it, of biscuits. That's it. It's very much my decision, and I think that's very important too. Is I mean, certainly no way anti-alcohol. Like, I'm not sort of going to be preaching, going, oh, everyone should give up drinking, you know, change their life, or it's unhealthy, that sort of thing. It's just unhealthy for me. It's something that doesn't sit well in my life. It's not something that I can live with a part in my life anymore again that all or nothing nature um, if I was someone that could just have one I probably wouldn't have stopped in the first place there might be elements now where I might be okay to have one and your mind just sometimes still play those tricks but the risk isn't worth it for me now to have that one and to fall back into even close to where I was before uh, doesn't doesn't bode thinking about really from the outside looking in though and when you hear the whole story it's something you do very well, sharing the whole story and not just pretending it's all flowery and new and this is wonderful. You share the hard times, you share the good times and uh, that's why I think a lot of people are drawn to you and are very much drawn to your story and do find you, quite frankly, quite inspirational, I think, and that's why you know, you're know you doing as well as you are, in my opinion. Thank you for that. It's um, Yeah, as I said, if I can help one person from just sharing that story, then it's completely worthwhile for me. Mm it's still very vivid it's still a long long period of my life with those moments and again still some small moments now you know you, you battle I think that's very important once you've come sort of through something like that to to create the awareness from and to, to, to share the struggle with those who maybe haven't got to their epiphany moment just yet do you feel like you found you yeah without a doubt I mean, there's a good quote I often see which is um, I haven't changed I've just found myself but again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write off these previous years ever. I'd never sort of go if I could do it again. I'd wish that these wouldn't happen. I see this as very much the, the journey I was meant to take, mm. the building um, blocks, if you will. Exactly, completely the foundations and the investment, the investment to get to where I am now. I mean, again, the sheer amount of money I guess that I spent at the time is not worth even thinking about. But if that was what it took to get me from that point of not wanting to be here at all to getting to this point now of of healthy, enjoying life, and, and living this outdoorsy life then then by all means it's a worthwhile investment throughout this whole thing throughout the whole experience from a young lad to where you're at now there has always been one passion and that passion has been food mm. whether it was good food or bad food in some points of your life bad food in some points of your life good food I know you've always enjoyed cooking food and that's where this fell foodie was born and where kind of this next step of your life was born. Um, something we spoke about before we switched on the podcast, before we press record, is something that I know you don't consider yourself, which is, which is a chef. <laughs> when people look at your food on Instagram, they might think, ah, ah, he's a good chef, him. But you wouldn't consider yourself a chef. 
No, not at all. No, I, I find it quite insulting too. It's actual shit. So interesting, this, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, there's been there's been pitch before, even in print or people else dubbing that way. So they've they've dubbed it chef, and I've never been trained. I'm completely self-taught. I mean, the, the cooking side of things came about um, from an early age, um, cooking alongside my grandmother at the time, um, just initially baking little bits out there. But I always love the way it brought people together and sort of brought family together around the table on a Sunday and whatnot, or, or even friends for certain events, barbecues and things. There was always people gathering in that sort of kitchen mentality. So it was very much self-taught. So just picking up little bits from there, you know, I'd religiously sort of uh, read cookbooks. I was never really into fiction books when if you know, your Harry Potters or whatnot. I was just I was just reading cookbooks and I'd sit there even on a Saturday morning where people were watching the kids' telly. I'd be on Saturday Kitchen sort of thing, you know, watching, <laughs> watching Keith Floyd clips and whatnot, you know, loving that sort of side. But no, the, the, the chef term, I mean, again, I'd, I'd worked with many chefs obviously being in that trade. And then these guys have gone through sort of culinary colleges, you know, they've studied mm-hmm. to, to get to where they are at that level. And for me to, to do myself that way through reading a few books and, and chopping a few onions, I think I think it's it's, it's insulting really to them. I think it's uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bring myself to that. I, I cook as well, even a cook. An, an outdoor cook. <laughs> it's like if someone that goes to the gym a lot tells you how to train, but they're not actually a personal trainer. It's a similar kind of yeah, true. Similar kind of yeah. way of looking at it. I, I guess yeah, they, they might have the, they might have the knowledge and they might have the, the background and, the, and but they're not the qualified. But exactly, yeah, I suppose so. Is there any but is there I any desire that. anyone to, to to qualify as a chef at no, any I point? No. So, so, no, no, I'm gonna keep up the mountains, buddy. I think uh, University of Life. I think is the, <laughs> is the one I'll choose to graduate from now. <laughs> Let's talk about the happy times. Let's talk about uh, incredible views, incredible meals. You've obviously done this for a few years now. You've been climbing mountains you've been making grub at the top of mountains you've been taking incredible photos again i do urge you to if you don't follow uh, fell food you go and do that on instagram now is there any moments any certain days that really stand out to you any meals that you've cooked any views that you've seen any like weather that you've experienced that you've thought you know what this is life man this is sick Hmm. many Many mm. and um, and then you never get sick of them, never get sick of them. Sometimes people ask you that if there's a particular particular mountain or particular view that you, you love, love most when you're cooking or, or to camp on, and and each one's got a different thing. Whether or not you've hiked there or whether or not you, you, you've camped there, a different point or particular meal you've had or the people you were with. I think it's all about the memories that have sort of been captured around that time. But certainly, the, the, the sort of way nature can produce some of these spectacles mm-hmm. sometimes is fantastic. I mean, I'm a, I'm always a big advocate for uh, for the the, the, the fire, you know, the cooking on the fire sort of stage. Yeah. I love that sort of bringing it back to sort of basics and uh, ancestral sort of living. Almost, you know, that's how they cooked originally on open fire, out out in the hills. But that itself being almost like nature's television. You've then got the likes of these spectacles, like these these fantastic sunsets. The other day, a spectacular cloud inversion after waking up on sort of near Buttermere. It just makes you realise, I suppose, how small you are in this in this sort of environment. It's something a lot of people talk about that how small you are. Mm. I've had a lot of people talk about that to me before, and it's actually something that I always say to people when they talk to me about the outdoors in in Snowdonia. Um, there's a particular valley when you drop down, um, coming out of Bala, and you drop down and you're heading towards the coast. And if I'm feeling like a little bit sort of you know, down or things are getting on top of me or whatever, like, it's just a hard time. I'll take the bike, my road bike, and I'll go out there and I'll drop down into this valley, drops down a big 15% hill, down into a V-shaped valley, and you're just on a bike in the middle of it, and you look up and it's vast, and you're like, 
all right my problems really don't matter Mm. do they breathtaking when you think of the outdoors what does the outdoors mean to you I think it's that feeling of escapism um, that I love escapism from the the modern world and and, and from the sort of day to day thoughts again I mean again like that the alcohol was that sort of sedation for those bits I mean I'm by no means sort of miracle cured you know it's it's, it's still something you sort of live with through through that sort of new addiction and through that sort of new way of finding endorphins I I think ultimately all you want to do is be happy I think no matter what it is, what you find to try and be happy, that's all, that's all everyone wants, wants to be. Whether it's through something like exercise or even sort of down to drinking, as it was at one point, was the most the sort of falsifying that happiness. Uh, even some harder drugs to things like adrenaline seeking. It's always just searching for that dopamine hit, really. Mm. That's all it is. You're just looking for something that brings in that level. And for me now, that endorphin rush is certainly walking up these mountains and, and, and getting those, not always, I mean, those views at the top. But the fitness aspect of it, I think that march, that challenge of, of getting up these steep, steep sort of mm. these steep routes and getting to the top and quicker and quicker. And I just love that. I, I love just getting up there and surviving up there. And also getting up there and knowing that you're going to eat some great food at the top <laughs> rather than like... <laughs> it's always a good incentive, I guess, yeah. Some I'm, rubbish jam sandwiches or something or whatever it might be. There's certainly plenty of offers from uh, from peers and friends these days <laughs> of company on these walks. Uh, I uh, bet there is. I don't think it's my crack. But, uh, one, uh, one question that I really wanted to ask, and we'll end with this. If you could go up any mountain and cook anywhere... Where would you want to go and what would you want to cook? That is a question, isn't it? People often ask what what's my favourite dishes or favourite to cook or favourite mountain, but combining all three, that's 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 a toughie that. I'd probably say that that mountain hasn't been climbed for me yet. Whether or not that mountain is even a physical <laughs> mountain, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a, something else, maybe it's the personal most personal mountain, I don't know, but cooking wise I love many different cuisines, really. I mean, I different sort of from Italian to the Indian cuisines. I mean, Greek's probably my favourite favourite sort of food. The real sort of death row dinner, I guess, would be would be like a nice cleftico lamb dish for me. Oh! Um, but producing that on a camping stove, that that would be a challenge. <laughs> uh, I like almost the answer that you gave me. Basically, then is <laughs> the mountain hasn't been climbed yeah, yeah. and the meal hasn't been made. So, so. <laughs> so I've got enough cop out. <laughs> Before I say anything else, I want to say a massive thank you to Harrison, not only for the breakfast he cooked me, future guest pressure's on by the way, but for opening up and being so honest about his story. It truly is incredibly, incredibly inspiring and Harrison really does show whatever you're going through, however dark the place you're in, there is always a way out. I took a lot of inspiration from talking to Harrison and I hope you did as well. As always, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and we're back in a couple of weeks with another brand new episode.